Hey everybody, welcome to another episode, episode 363 of Design Recharge. We're at the end of a really weird year, right, Will? Very weird, yeah. 2020, I think it's it's gone down in the Twitterverse as one of the weirdest years to date. Amen. But I knew Will before 2020. And Will stood out to me. We had a great conversation. He's an amazing writer. He's somebody who gets people, I think, gets people to open up. He builds a lot of trust pretty quickly, I think. Uh, and it's just his superpower. But he also has done some really um, heavy work and not meaning like heavy lifting, which maybe you've done some heavy lifting, but the oh, work yeah, he's I up, doing. I grew up on a ranch, so I definitely did that too. But the heavy work you're doing is avoided by a lot of people. We're going to talk about anti-racism plans, anti-racism workshops that you lead. You've done diversity and inclusion workshops, but you're really focused on um, a couple things that we're going to talk about later. And I just kind of want to give them a little bit of background about your, you know, how you came to design, what your business does, and why you're super passionate about this. Can you give them a little background? My work, I work at the intersection of social justice and design thinking. And the reason why I've been doing that is because for over a decade, I've done anti-racism work, workshops, mediation, coalition building, that kind of stuff. And separate from that, I was really into industrial design and design thinking. So I have about 10 years of doing workshops on design thinking and using design thinking to solve problems. And um, one thing about anti-racism work that I love is that in the moment people are in that space, they feel safe, they share things that they've never shared in their lives with anyone. And they build this awareness for what oppression uh, operates like in our, in our world but then they go back to their regular life and they're like, oh, you know, my uncle said something at dinner. I should have been effective, but I didn't know what to do or I was ugly about it. Or, um, you know, at work we have this policy and I just don't feel like I have enough of a voice to say something, but I know it's wrong. Uh, you know, and they build that awareness until they start to see things, but they also feel very much like they can't act uh, many people. And so, uh, design thinking was something that I was doing uh, to solve other problems, like in the public sector, public space of education and some uh, consulting work. And I was like, you know what, if these two things were married, we could really make some big changes. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing, uh, I've developed a framework that's taking pieces of things that I would do in anti-racism workshops um, and improving the design thinking process. Uh, and I'm helping businesses prevent appropriation, uh, have more inclusive work environments, um, and to ultimately move and position them to themselves towards social justice. What's appropriation? Appropriation is, uh, so you know when H&M had the ad and they had the little black boy wearing the t-shirt that said the coolest monkey in the jungle? And you're thinking to yourself, how tone deaf can the staff be to like let that happen? And then there's the outlash, the backlash. Appropriation is, um, you know, uh, people stealing elements from hip hop culture 
and making it their own. So wearing braids when you, you know, so um, it can, it can be a bunch of different things, but basically it's taking ownership of something that has that is inherently better because a non-black person is doing it. It gets more so exposure, it gets more attention, but it's, it, it's getting away from the core of what that thing actually is. So it's watering down maybe the issue? Mm-hmm. Watering down the issue and watering down that tradition or that, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, you know, uh, fashion brands, they always get in trouble on the runway. You know, if they if they dress someone in Native American attire, but like, that doesn't seem Cherokee to me. That doesn't seem yoga to me. Like, what is that? That's mocking our culture. Mm-hmm. And it's not celebrating it. It seems like super sticky and really hard to know what to what to do. So you've actually brought up a bunch of things that I actually want to talk about that weren't even on my questions, but I knew we would have a fine conversation either way. (laughs) I want to know what to do with that uncle or in that situation. I also want to know what, so I understand I can, um, I can see it, but then what can I do and how can I practice it in my daily life, right? You know, sometimes we think right. about doing little habits first. So practicing right. it um, as we, what would you say, but maybe you didn't speak up or, but then it's taking the time and making sure that you are speaking up. Can you, what would you do in the, when it's Christmas or Thanksgiving? And I'm trying to pick an uncle that I don't have. Cause I have like 27 uncles. Cause my mom's one you of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, uncle. Can't say Uncle Henry because that's one of my uncles. Um, let's say, and I can't say Jimmy because Jimmy, well, but Jimmy's dead. Let's just say Uncle Jimmy. Davey. Okay. I don't have an Uncle Davey. So the way we classify in the anti-racism workshops I do is we classify as the good, the bad, the ugly. So the ugly is Uncle Davey says something and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe how blank, 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 you are to say something like that. That's the ugly. The bad is ignoring it. So you stay silent, you change the topic. Most of us are pretty bad in those situations. Um, And sometimes some of us are ugly in those situations. Now, the important thing to realize is that whether bad bad or ugly do have a place they do have a place, um, but good and being effective is moving toward social justice because it's effective in the sense that you can actually change that person's beliefs, but you cannot do that in one sitting. And so what the good is, is eliciting dialogue. And what that means is I, is I ask um, Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Davey, like, hey, when you said that about about black people, what did you mean? I I, I feign ignorance. I act like I don't know where that's coming from because when you really break down and dissect oppression and racism and sexism, we have no good reasons for it. It's just things that we've heard, things that we've been taught. We didn't learn this on our own. And so, you know, you kind of have some conversations with him about that, but very direct, right? Because normally we kind of sidestep, 
we talk about we politicize it but you have a conversation to get a get a sense of like where that's coming from or we avoid uncle davy <laughs> right we're like Some oh uncle davy's here i'm going Right. Some things that I've heard in workshops are, you know what, my, my beliefs about, uh, you know, rap music come from, I, I, I bought a rap album. I liked an artist. I played it in my room and my dad got really upset and broke my stereo and told me to never listen to that ish in this house ever again. And that's where that person's record started playing of hip hop and black people and what characteristics are associated with that. And so when you elicit dialogue, you start to learn that racism comes from a place of pain and you're not supposed to validate, you're not supposed to validate the pain or, or turn the oppressor into the victim but once you start to understand that and dissect it, you can have effective dialogue. And once that effective dialogue takes place, then there's a point where you switch and you say, hey, you know, we've talked a few times about like your, like your thoughts about black people. And I've kind of shared with you like my, my thoughts. I do have to say that personally offends me when you say things about black culture the way you do. And I was wondering if you could maybe change that behavior around me because I love you. I understand the, the pain that you went through, but I just don't feel it's right. You know, so that that's the ultimate conversation that you're trying to get to with Uncle Davey. Now, remember, there's the good, the bad, the ugly. So the good is when you, you want to keep that relationship, you value that relationship, you need that relationship. But sometimes... The bad and the ugly are appropriate. Why don't you teach us your thing and then I'll ask more questions. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So um, basically, like I was telling y'all, what I'm trying to do is merge those two worlds and the two experiences that I have, because there's a lot of value in anti-racism work. There's a lot of value in design thinking. And when we start to think about actually dismantling racism, whether it's in an organization, for individuals, or in society, I think that those two things have to come together. Those elements have to come together because there's a lot of things that are broken within design thinking, but designers are the people that are actually making the systems. And what I like to remind people of is that, you know, racism is not something that accidentally happened. People sat in a room and they systematically designed how can we keep what we have so that they can't come and take it. And we've just learned and lived in those systems and learned those ideas over the course of decades. And so when it comes to solving those problems, we got to be very intentional about it. And so what I'm trying to do is help organizations seek social justice. So I'm a strong believer that design has changed the world and will continue to change the world and will always change the world because um, happy accidents and miracles and, and, and the like are very rare. 
it's most often somebody creating and developing something that really impacts the world. And I believe if we change the way that we create things, we can make more inclusive uh, and more appropriate solutions, more equitable solutions. I always have to say one thing for me, I'm in Fresno, California. This is the land of the Yokut uh, people. And this land in Fresno, California was stolen from them. So I do have to give um, credence to that land. And another thing that I like to do is talk about how I stand on the shoulders of people that came before me, ancestors, people that um, gave me my civil rights and liberties as a black man. Um, the picture to the far right, uh, number seven on that picture is my grandfather, uh, Willie Matt Hardaway. His father, Green Hardaway, my great-grandfather, that is a school that uh, my great-grandfather made for the Black kids in my hometown because they did not have a school. And so every Black child in that town came to the uh, place that I grew up at. They built this school. My father went to that school. My uncles went to that school. My aunts went to that school. And the way they described it is what we had was what we had. Um, we went up to ninth grade, I believe. And I was in the same classroom as uh, kids that were in kindergarten. And there was one teacher. And so I just got to acknowledge that. One, the ingenuity of my great grandfather to say, you know what? We need education. We need to have this. Who was a um, who was a sharecropper who was able to work off and buy and buy um, about a hundred acres, which is where I grew up at. But the ingenuity of him to do that, um, and then just the history of my town is is rooted more closely to slavery than some other folks in the world. And so, when I'm doing workshops, me being able to pull on those stories and that legacy to remind people of just how recent these things occur is very important and effective. Patricia said, said it gives her chills, Will. <laughs> and Joanna's here um, and she said very can, poignant. Thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, equity can be designed the same way sustainable systems can be designed. And we need cultural sustainability. And so, um, for people of color and for women, uh, walking in spaces of professionalism and business and industry is walking in those spaces with that identity without being able to hide that identity. Mm. And so a lot of ineffectiveness in business is attached to systems of oppression. A lot of work environments are attached, attached to systems of oppression. Um, there's wage gaps, there's um, underrepresentation in industries that are very important to have diversity. Margaret Neal, an amazing researcher from Stanford has proven over and over again that diverse teams are more effective than homogenous teams. And the reason, the simple reason for that is, Diane, if, if both you and I are white women and we are around the table discussing something, and I get an idea, I'm going to assume that you already have that idea, that you already know that, that you're already aware of that, I'm not gonna bring it up. But when we have diverse teams, we don't make those assumptions and therefore we have more critical dialogue. 
Here's a little bit about what I do. So I, I marry design thinking and social justice, anti-racism. I have over a decade of experience doing both of those things. And what we do is we kind of modify the design thinking process. So I love design. Every time I get ready to criticize design thinking, I have to say, I am probably one of the foremost users of this process <laughs> just walking the planet Earth. I love design thinking. Where it has its problems and flaws at, though, and I discovered a lot of this when I was doing my master's thesis on design thinking as a tool to address inequities in higher education. And where the flaws are, it has this concept of tabula rasa, right? So, like, it's like a Latin term that means, like, clean slate. Oh. So... We think of design and creative work and design thinking as we're working from a clean slate and we're gonna make something amazing. And so when you come into a design thinking space, you take a, a concept as simple as that. We're coming to it with a clean slate. No, we have a bunch of people on this design team, which means we have a bunch of opportunities and we have a bunch of gaps. The opportunities is, uh, so we do this uh, process called identity mapping. So we have everybody map out their identities and we look at where do we have strengths in terms of who we're representing, who we can represent and where do we have gaps? So if we're a predominantly white team and we're making a, a coffee product for the South Bronx, we have some gaps that we need to close at some point in this process. Maybe we don't have the power to ask the powers that be, hey, give us a more diverse team but we have the power in the rest of this design thinking process to intentionally check those biases that we have just based on who's on the team. And then you look at something as simple as empathy. And you might think, and you know, empathy is kind of a buzzword right now. And you might think that, well, if you're using empathy, then you're relating to people that you need to relate to to solve their problems. Well, who do we feel comfortable talking to? People it's who are like us. Question. Right. Yeah. So if I if I dropped you off in the South Bronx and let's, you know, the Bronx at this point is, is very gentrified. Who would you feel comfortable talking to? Who would you go up to to interview about coffee in the South Bronx? And so mm -hmm. that's a big problem with empathy. And so we we look at all those mm -hmm. elements and all the activities that are traditional within human centered design. And we make sure that we're checking for bias, that we're being intentional and not objective. For me, objective is such a bad word because objective just means appealing to what we perceive as objective. And what we perceive as objective is often a white male construct. And so the objectivity in that sense has a lot of bias built into it already. And so being intentional about if we're designing for people who drink coffee in the South Bronx and a majority of people in the South Bronx are of Latina, Latinx origin, those are the folks we need to be talking to. Because if they go and their neighbors see them go, they're going to drive other cultures to go. Um, but so often we use terms like objective or the majority of people or the average Joe, there's a clear picture of what that person is like. And it's often not like many people of color, many transgender people, um, and many people who, uh, to be honest, might drive a lot more culture and energy to that product or service 
than you can imagine. So uh, cultural frames, uh, equity rubrics, uh, limiting beliefs, like these are examples of activities that we apply to the design thinking framework to get to better solutions. Is that something you can do in a, a day or are these workshops something that you, they need to come back to? Because it seems like this is some heavy stuff. So what's interesting is what I love about the design thinking process is that, you know, it moves fast, right? And so you give people an objective and a frame to work from. And we're pretty good at doing that under time constraints. Mm -hmm. So if, if in this frame, I say we need to use lenses. So we're developing uh, an app to solve a health problem, right? But we don't have representation for the black community on the team. Okay, to understand this problem, we need to understand the health, uh, the health issues that are going on in the black community. So that means we need to hit the streets, interview folks from that community. We need to get on our laptops and look specifically at that community and, and the health plights that exist there. And we need to be intentional about doing that. And so just giving people the frame uh, gives them permission to do it. But the problem is, is when we're not intentional and we're objective, our bias gets in the way and we just don't do it. And so I do um, lightning decision jams in an hour and a half to just get to a decision. And that's using just the people in the room. And then the design sprints are a little bit longer. It could be a two week process where you do get external feedback and in input. Um, but what I love about design thinking is it does move very quickly. And remember, we're not through this process. We may change people, but we're not changing people we are um, designing a solution that's equitable. You're just trying to make sure everybody's voice is heard. Yeah, and, and solving <laughs> specific problems. So, you know, if, if we continue to see fashion brands, for example, say we, we don't have enough diversity in fashion, we don't have enough diversity in fashion, the, the bank owner who recently said, Oh, there weren't a lot of uh, enough qualified applicants to hire a black person in this in this corporate in this role. So going in and solving that problem for him, then that could be a problem that exists in his perception, which then trickles down to the policy, which then trickles down to HR, which then you know what I mean. And so you can solve that problem and get them the qualified applicants that they need for those types of jobs. So lightning decision jams are very fast, very quick. Um, and then ultimately going through this process for any brand that wants to be authentic, that wants to be inclusive, that wants to be progressive, this is the type of work that needs to be done. I've pivoted from doing um, brand identity work to doing um, service design uh, and, and designing work environments. And so, for example, in the top right corner, those are a group of biologists. They hired their first uh, editor as a woman, and she was concerned about their process because there were a lot of uh, papers from uh, biologists in Africa and South America that were getting rejected consistently. Um, and a lot of papers uh, created by women who are biologists were getting rejected consistently. And it was all being done in the name of good science and objective science and standards. And so uh, what we did was we did uh, a lightning decision jam 
and we help them develop processes to one, uh, change their evaluation process because we help them reframe their thoughts about these upcoming biologists. They, their mindset was gatekeeper. Like I gotta, I gotta keep bad science out, which is fine. You can keep quote unquote bad science out and they, they ended up redefining that as well. But let's say you wanted to keep bad science out. So if you're the gatekeeper, you keep bad science out. You also got to give feedback to that by bad quote unquote bad scientists so that they can improve and submit again. But that wasn't how the feedback was being given. The feedback was being given as a gatekeeper. Um, the tone of it was you'll never be able to publish in this journal. You know what I mean? And so we reframed their mindset to be mentors of up and coming biologists. Um, and they changed a lot of their practices and they're doing a lot better with getting authors of color into that publication. Okay, so Doc has a question. The difference between being inclusive and then finding personas and target demographics are these two separate things. If you're finding personas and they're not real, it kind of depends on the context of the problem. So if you have a very clearly defined problem and you have very clearly defined gaps from people uh, of color or people that are that are uh, women or transgender, like if you know that there's a specific problem with a certain community, there should be no need for personas because you can go and talk to that community. Um, if you don't, if that's kind of narrow, but you do want to be more inclusive and you do want to bring um, other ideas and thoughts to the table, you want to frame this problem in different ways, personas can work, but the difference is the personas that I create are based in a lot of quantitative data about specific communities. Like the health example that I gave, if we're making something, an app that has to do with health and we don't have enough black representation, then I need to dive into um, data sets and articles and stuff like that to craft that persona so that we get the gravity of what we're solving for. So I see in, and I'm trying to still answer maybe or ask uh, Doc's question, but so being inclusive means obviously in healthcare, it absolutely, we need to make sure we're doing that. But then if we're, if we're in the South Bronx and we're the, the Latino population is who we're going for, or the coffee brand is trying to, uh, that's a very target demographic. So it's not really, we're not being inclusive. We're being very focused in, is that, is that right? Uh, okay. I, I see what you're saying. So, okay. So inclusive means who has historically been left out. Okay of the conversation because some people are already in the conversation. Like for example, uh, the fashion industry is trying to be more inclusive. They're trying to uh, have better representation among models. They're trying to have better representation at the executive level. We've already been including um, white folks in that conversation. They're already in the conversation. We're welcoming more people into the conversation. And so sometimes inclusive can look like we are going to specifically talk to certain races 
and genders and ethnicities to bring them into the conversation that's already being had. So they can see that they're represented there too. Right. And we can, and we can be more effective because remember diversity is, it drives creativity. I see what he's saying though. So it really is two separate things. So you have a target demographic that you're going for and then inclusivity is people who commonly been left out. Right. Because if we were um, like, if we were in North Fresno and I'm doing, I'm solving a problem there, my target demographic is going to be predominantly uh, white folks. But at the same time, what are they doing in that community that is preventing it from being more diverse? Because there mm. are also a, a lot of other business owners that are around. And, and if usually if you're solving a problem, you're trying to create or do something that hasn't been done before. And what we talked about with homogenous teams is it's hard to see outside the box. Mm-hmm. And so maybe part of that solution, what they're trying to do is get more creative juices flowing. And in that sense, going and talking to the folks on the margins in that community would be important. Okay. So uh, Patricia has a question. Our university okay. struggles and uh, will also, you work at a university still? Yeah. Okay, so she says, our university struggles with representing uh, people of color, really all diversity in photos. Do we simply represent what it is or be inspirational? I err towards the latter. We get criticized either way. Admittedly, only three of our 14-person department are non-white. Fortunately, our vice president is black. We try to talk openly about this subject, yet it can be difficult for some. Any advice or better process ideas? That's great. This is a, a, a big thing at, at universities because for, for us as black professionals in academia, we often talk about the signaling that happens on the main page of a college website or in the mission statement. For a college, what they're seeing is we need to recruit more students of color. And a, an innate marketing response to that is let's take some photos of our students of color or let's get some stock photography to show them that this is a diverse place. The problem with that is, is it really a diverse place? And so what you want to do in that case in terms of like marketing would be storytelling. So if you only got five black students, tell a story that they want told. Don't tell it, don't craft a story that makes you look good, tell a story that they want told. They are persisting in that institution. They are existing in that institution. There are some things that they like about that institution, but let them tell, let them highlight what they like, but also highlight what their struggles are. Because a lot of cultures, what what they want to see is the promotion of voice. And the fact that you promote that voice gives me an idea as an incoming student that, okay, they're talking about, they're talking about this for real. They're not talking about diversity and inclusion. They're talking about racism and prejudice. And they're doing it in an authentic way. And so that's kind of more what you want if you don't have enough representation than to kind of do like a broad overview of we're diverse. 
Weird Al Versa is not a very good strategy. So you said, and I've read some of the work you've done, and you've let me read, thankfully. But how was living a life that was narrow expectations a terrific place for you to grow creativity and uh, perspective? Because that may be where a lot of us are if we've been privileged and if we are um, white or if we're just have uh, whatever um, race or gender or whatever, we have other things that maybe we do have maybe a, a narrow experience. So how can, um, how did that, or narrow expectations, because you had uh, limited expectations in what your life was going to be like, but it, you said yeah, it helped so your, you grow creativity and perspective. All I knew growing up where I came from was dope dealers and cowboys. <laughs> I'm from a small town, uh, but you know, we, uh, you know, just drug infested, crime infested, and it was it was just an unconventional life that that now makes all the sense in the world for for where I am right now. But growing up in that way, I I had no context of the outside world. Like anything in media or on television was just fantasy. Mm. Like any it, it could be based on a true story. It's still fantasy. I I will never go to go to Europe I would never you know I would never do a bunch of these things growing up with that mindset and then getting an opportunity to step outside of it like your your ears you're just a sponge for any any information at that point and I think that's what uh drove my creativity is is after I stepped into other worlds and got into other experiences and talked to other people um, my antennas were just up. How does that leave you open for more creative thinking? And were you always just a creative kid? You know, if, if you had asked me growing up, I would have said no. But, you know, in retrospect, there's always elements, right? There's always elements of creativity. So I am a product of the creativity that was in hip hop, the different cultures, the different rhyme patterns, the different crews, the different style. Uh, I'm a product of action figures because I grew up in the 80s. And so, you know, playing, role playing and improvising with action figures with my cousin. Uh, I'm a product of Saturday morning cartoons. And so like all of those things fed my creativity because what would happen is, you know, most of our days were spent outside, whether it was uh, growing up on the ranch in the in the early days and and doing all that or out on the block like you most of your day is spent outside and so when you think about what what are these young people that are outside most of the day going to talk about um we're making references to cartoons and and you know just putting things together making each other laugh retelling stories exaggerating and so storytelling and uh you know so very creative in that sense growing up I didn't know what design was. Thank God for uh, for my uh, for Miss Kathy, my art teacher. I knew what art was, <laughs> but I didn't know what what design was as a term. Uh, but you know, those are the things that I think contributed to me being uh, creative uh, and giving me a lot of depth. So you went to community college. Your sister pushed you to that. Mm -hmm. So 
I had uh, went to visit my sister and um, I was kind of like ready to go uh, back home. She, she was, I came, I was in Visalia, California. She wanted me to stay a little bit longer. So I stayed a little bit longer. I got connected with these guys that lived next to her. They're on the track team at the local community college. And so what was cool about that is a lot of the sports recruitment that was happening still to this day for junior colleges is they will grab uh, athletes from across the country that maybe they didn't do so well academically, so they couldn't get to D1 school, but they were like D1 talent. And so, um, you know, it was all these people that I was comfortable with from Texas and Louisiana, Florida. And then there were people that were from cultures that, that I had never been to, like New Jersey, New York, and just having that community with people from similar backgrounds to me in a college environment. Um, I would just go up there to hang out. I wasn't taking nobody's class. I wasn't enrolled. Um, and then it was kind of like, hey, why don't you go take some classes? And if it hadn't been this class, I probably would never uh, continued in college. But the first class I um, went into was uh, taught by a woman named Judith House. And she played us a news clip. At the time, uh, we had just gotten into the Iraq war. She played us a news clip about a photojournalist that was covering a part of uh, an event that had happened uh, in the Middle East. And she asked us our thoughts about it. We kind of gave our thoughts about it. And then she played us another clip, same exact event from a different news agency. And that just blew my mind. Up to that point, I took the news as fact. Like that's like my, my worldview was narrow. Like whatever's on TV is on TV, whatever, you know, I took it as fact. And so that just blew my mind, the difference uh, between how those stories were covered that I was, I was hooked. I was like, okay, well teach me more stuff. Cause obviously I don't know everything there is to know. That's coming out of that teenage, you know, those teenage years where you're the smartest person in the room. That's me coming like in that mindset. So it was, it was really a revolutionary thing, but you were, um, understanding that you had to use critical thinking skills because it was the stories they were telling. Yeah. So like with, with any information you're given, like, you know, so in my small world, I can call BS because I know, like, I know how much this is supposed to cost. I know where, uh, where you were supposed to go to do that. But beyond that, I, everything was fact. Mm. Like, I don't have enough research. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough enough context. I don't have enough experience with people. For somebody to be on the news and for me to say, nah, that's not right. Like, I remember glimpses of the news being wrong, like the Rodney King beatings and all that. And I remember glimpses of it. But as a kid, you know, you don't register, like, that the news is covering poorly. You just register that, like, oh, something bad happened. Right. Right. You have no idea that there might be another story. Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask a, the appropriation thing again. So, cause I don't want to do anything bad, but I, I mean, I do encourage, you know, I, I think our school is um, we have a, a lot of students. They're the first person in their family to go to college. And it's a, we have a, a lot of cultural diversity Um but I've even seen with my African-American students, they will 
have all white people in their images. And I'm like, hey, I don't just say it to them. I say it to everybody because I it's it's not just it's not just white people. Right. And I think that people need to see other. uh, I understand about the stories and being authentic, but like everybody sweeps or everybody mops or everybody, you know, drives a car. Uh, so like we need to show other people doing these things right. yep. um, because they, I think th- that everybody needs to see, Oh, I, that could be me or that's me or that could be me. And I think, um, so I do really encourage them to use, I mean, and I'll call them out on it. I mean, and it's not just, I want to see African-American. I want to see Asian. I want to see women. I want to see men. I want to see right. um, Latina. Uh, I, I want to see a, a culturally diverse, if, if that's uh, what, if it's a car company or if it's a, whatever, you know, all of everybody uses crest or I mean, not what, everybody. What you're, what you're doing, Diana, is you're having them realize their bias. So in, and what you just shared, there's a couple of things working. One, you as a professor uh, see the opportunity to educate them on the world is going beyond just white people. What you also said gets to something that uh, in the conversation of race, people don't understand a lot about. For me as a black designer, right? If you ask me to go out and interview people for um, a problem that we're solving, and as a black man, I'm looking at that problem and I'm like, well, they probably are thinking about solving it in these ways. They probably expect this type of solution So even as a black man, I am going to go out and most likely interview uh, white working class people because internalized oppression, the way it works is the black voice doesn't matter. I'm not them. They are making this for the average person, the majority of people. So I need to go to the average person, the majority of people See, sometimes when internalized oppression comes up, it's because we're, we have a space that we've inherited that just brings it up. And so you think that having that just having a diverse team is enough, but it's not. Well, I also feel like I can ask you things and you're not going to hate me if I do something wrong. So I feel like that's one of your superpowers. I think anybody here could ask you a question and it'd be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even uncle Davey that doesn't exist, but. I would love to talk to an uncle Davey though. I love those conversations. (laughs) I bet. Okay. Well, so what about um, appropriation? Because I don't want to be guilty of this. I don't want to do, and I bet I have like, now I'm worried. Now I'm scared about, do you know what I mean? I'm just being honest. Right. Let, yeah, yeah. Let's work on this. Right. OK, tell me. And this is for a lot of a lot of people uh, in power groups. A lot of men. I'm in a power. I have privilege as a man. I'm in a power group as a man. When I walk into a parking lot, I don't fear for my life. In most contexts. So when we start to talk about issues um, like sexual assault and stalking and rape, my privilege will blind me to the importance of needing to solve that problem as opposed to like, oh, but I wanted to work on this cool um, app problem. 
And so what we have to stop doing is um, what we say in anti-racism work is guilt is the glue that holds prejudice in place. We have mm. to stop feeling careful. We have to stop feeling guilty. And we have to stop. We, do, we really need to do some internal work to find the times that we, work, that we have appropriated culture, that we have been prejudiced, because all of us have. All of us have done it. And the most secure you can make a person of color feel is not by saying, not by stating your colorblindness, because that's a red flag for people of color. Um, not by um, saying that you're not racist, because that's also a red flag. But by sharing your journey of, I went from here to here. I went from, so for example, I went from growing up in a household and being told that I can't date outside my race to now dating outside my race. So whatever whatever your truth is, whatever that journey is, because we we were all raised in these uh, prejudiced households with prejudiced notions, and we still are being raised that way. And so we have to acknowledge it and embrace it and talk about how we're working on it as opposed to we're not this and they're not us. I always want to connect, you know, like I'm like trying to find things that are similar. So my, so then, but then I feel bad because of anyway, so I'm just telling you, so I'd like to state what, that I'm not great at this. So my dad and my mom picked cotton, my dad's yeah, his granddad was a sharecropper, but they didn't have 100 acres. Whew, that would have been, I mean, they never, they were super, super poor, super problematic. He was an alcoholic, but he could read anyway, whole another story. But, but like I, it was a hard life for my dad, you know, right. and it, it wasn't easy. And, um, but I think I'm glad, I'm proud that he, worked so hard and got out of it, right? Like he, and very similar to you, you got out of it and you didn't even know there was another life. And my grandfather didn't, my papa didn't know that, my dad said he wanted to be an engineer. My dad, my papa thought he meant like toot toot engineer, you know, out on right. the train, you know? And he's right. like, no son, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. So my dad was a lawyer, but he wanted to be an engineer. But my grandfather didn't know what an engineer was, right? So limited uh, knowledge. But so what if I wanted to connect with you by you saying your grandfather, your great-grandfather, my great, my great-grandfather. Yeah, he was a sharecropper too. So I know it's different though, because what, what I'm white your, and you're your black. Worries, what are your worries about that? Worries? Because... Like if you, then if you I ask, feel if like you were thinking about asking me that question. What are the reasons you wouldn't? Because I'm white, and I feel like I, mine, my probably wasn't as bad as yours. There, that's how you ask it. Then you say, "Hey, you know, I was. You mentioned your your great grandfather was a sharecropper. My grandfather was a sharecropper too." And I'm, I'm curious to know what the differences were with a black sharecropper and a white sharecropper. What were they? 
I'm sweating, Will. I never sweat. Holy moly. It's serious so, you know, stuff, um, though. But there again, this is why I think it can't just be like yeah. a one workshop thing. This is like a course. Yeah, this is a lessons yeah. that people need to learn and practice. Oftentimes for black sharecroppers, it was an okie doke, right? It was like. What's that mean? You know, an okie doke. Like, uh, no. it's like, it's like a trick. A prick? A trick. Oh, a trick. I was like, we try not to cuss on so, here. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. So it was like, um, it was like, hey, um, we're going to give you the sharecropping. Because, you know, uh, you know, white folks have been, had the privilege of sharecropping before, you know, slaves were freed and all. You call it a privilege when, you know, it's just kind of keeping you below the poverty line. But, um, Oftentimes, like what happened with my great grandfather, I don't know the specifics of the story, doesn't often happen. Um, so the the trick was, hey, you're now a sharecropper. You're you're no longer a slave. Oh. You're now a sharecropper. And if you work enough, hmm. I can give you some pieces of this land and you can own your own land. Truth is, that promise never happened. For right. many, many, many sharecroppers. It didn't with my family. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother, my me mama, dated my grandpa, my papa, and she couldn't tell her dad that they had gotten married even. She couldn't tell mm -hmm. him because it was so below. They owned land. So it was right. so below there. Right. He didn't want her to marry. And he outed her. He, they had to go and they it was uh she was Ooh, the, the shunning that happened in the last century boy yeah <laughs> but that was i mean and it was all just about how you learn earn a living or who your family was right but but yep. that's what you're saying yep. when you start dating outside your race or you um there are certain things that i didn't even know were a thing right you know just because of how i was uh how i grew up but that stuff, Diane, is imprinted on us. Hmm. So what we have to realize is we're all prejudiced because our first thought is what was imprinted on us. And then us checking that thought is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to wipe that thought away because it, it, it just really doesn't work that way. What we're trying to do is when I'm in a dark alley and a black man approaching me, like, and I have the thought of, oh my God, is he going to rob me? What I need to check is, wait a minute. Let me look at the situation here. This is a man in a suit and tie. We probably are both coming from this, the conference that we we're both just at. I should be okay. <laughs> but, you know, so it's that type of uh, stuff. But the thought is always going to be there because it was just ingrained in us as children it's the reason why, you know, when you uh, start going to therapy and you find the most gains when you go back and you and you recall things that traumatized you that you didn't realize traumatized you, but it's just been impacting your behavior for a very long time. It's the same thing with uh, racial trauma for Black people and the teaching of prejudice and racism to uh, power groups or sexism to men. Like 
it's, you know, those are our first thoughts. And we just have to be aware enough to check them and to, and you know, one thing um, that maybe everybody here, I don't know how many folks are here at this point. And what I talk to with businesses about is don't, there's a way to apologize. <laughs> and there's a way not to apologize. I don't know, Diane, I don't know if you've experienced the company that comes out and apologizes for the tweet or the, the misstep or whatever, but those apologies are terrible. Because they're insincere? They're insincere. They're not acknowledging the root of the problem. They're acknowledging that like, hey, this tweet may have offended some people. They're not acknowledging the pain. It mm. may have, for if you were offended, mm. that's not a thing. Um, and then it's also not acknowledging like what we talked about as an individual, how you want to just share your story. Like I was hearing my thinking, now I'm hearing my thinking. That's how the apology should go. Like this tweet that just happened is really having us do some serious internal looking in the mirror because it was a racist tweet, it was inconsiderate and we have some work to do. And if you have any advice for how we need to do that work, please let us know. So first thing we need to do is do some self-work, see where we are having uh, in our life prejudices, where we just are, we came out that way, or we were raised that way, or these are things that we aren't even acknowledging as right. things that were made us molded, right? I mean, that's continuous. You're always doing that, but maybe you're you're starting. What's what are some of the next steps, or how? Because we're at the end of our time. But what what would you tell somebody if they want to make sure that they're working on this? What could they do, and how can they get in touch with you? So uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm going to put the link right now. Oh yeah, at willgo.io. Uh, my email is whardaway at willgo.io. I'm on every social media platform, including my personal Instagram account at whardaway, uh, W-H-A-R-D-A-W-A-Y. Just reach out and, and we can connect for sure. If you have a business where you're worried about the work environment or like the topic of, of race or things that are going on in the work environment are, are taboo and y'all haven't really had conversations around it, give me a call because I've had those, I've facilitated those conversations for a long time. And especially if you're trying to solve uh, problems that have a root uh, in some of these issues, like you're trying to diversify your client base, you're trying to diversify your staff, you're trying to make an inclusive, a more inclusive environment for your staff, or you're trying to make an, a more inclusive product. That's the stuff that I love to do. I think we have to have a part two, Will, because I think I want to yeah. make sure that I'm not doing appropriations wrong. and We didn't really get to cover it. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay, part two. <laughs> I know. Well, part two, appropriations. Thank you, Will. And so just I just want to make sure if, if you're listening all, or you're watching on YouTube, all the links are below. If you're um, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, the links are here also. So on Instagram at Will, W-I-L-L 
go go dot io is his instagram yep. and then you can go to will go dot io on the web and find and he has um you have uh workshops that you do will you do those in person or will you also do those remotely right now yeah so uh i do them in person i i connect with a lot of the people a lot with the people at mural because i use mural when i do remote stuff um, and a lot of people haven't used products like that. And it's so uh, refreshing for teams that have been working remote because they're mm -hmm. like, okay, I really like being able to move pieces around on the board and brainstorm and, you know, have some energy uh, in this green based world that we live in. Okay. So, but if somebody wanted to, they could email you, they can re DM you and then they yep. can get in uh, to so conversations with you and you can help them with whether it's the work you're doing. If me as a designer, the work I'm doing so that I make sure that I'm um, reaching an audience. You also specifically work with fashion brands because there's a whole another thing that we didn't talk about, which hopefully yep. we'll get to next time is even how uh, people are uh, discriminating even mm. when if it's in retail, the people who work in retail are discriminating against somebody else. Just yeah. like maybe what you're saying in the parking lot, you're you're really making a discriminatory story in your head. Yeah. And it yeah. happens in fashion a lot, which is one of your focuses. Anyway, well, thanks. I'm so glad you're my friend. And, <laughs> and um, just thanks for doing this with me. Yeah, this was good. I, I enjoyed. I wish I could have saw y'all's faces, uh, but I appreciate y'all listening to this. And thank you for having me, Diane.